Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Save big money on your outdoor project now at Menards. We have everything you need to keep your outdoor power equipment running smooth so you can keep that lawn in tip-top shape or enjoy some time on your boat. Right now, all FVP, lawn and garden, and marine batteries are on sale through May 5th. Check out our entire selection of FVP batteries today and view our weekly flyer on Menards.com for more great deals. Save big money at Menards. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Tales to Terrify and the all-new Far-Fetched Fables. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. This is the Starship Sova, everybody. Welcome. Hello and welcome to Show 457. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. Tell you what's coming in today's show. First up is the main fiction. It is the story of Darrow and Arbolita by Shane Hallenbach. Then we have the science news, end of the month. Mr. J.J. Campanella. That is all coming for your delights in today's show. I do hope you will stick around and enjoy it. So we'll jump straight into the main fiction. And like I say, it is the story of Daru and Arbolita by Shane Hallenbach. I'll give you a little heads up about Shane. This story originally, if just if you're interested, originally appeared in Analog Magazine. Shane Hallenbach lives in Chicago with his wife and three kids, where he writes software by day and avoids writing stories by night. His fiction has appeared in Analog, Escape Pod, The Year's Best, YA, Speculative Fiction and elsewhere. He blogs regularly at shanehallenbach.com or you can find him on Twitter at shanehallenbach. This story is narrated by Mark Nelson. Mark Nelson, a.k.a. Harry Shaw, has been recording audiobooks since 2006, starting as LibriVox volunteer and later for such producers as Audible, Audible Frontiers, Hatchet, Wonder Audio, Listen to a Book. Recording as Mark Nelson and as Harry Shaw, he narrated more than 50 commercial audiobooks, including classics, horror, mysteries, contemporary and classic science fiction. He still regularly contributes to LibriVox, where he credits for getting out of human resources and into something very useful. Visit his website at markdouglasnelson.com. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present... The Story of Darrow and the Arbolita. By Shane Halbach. 
Darrow slumped in the seat of his suspensor tug and rubbed his eyes. He was driving through a narrow green tunnel formed by margalo trees, their branches interlocking fifty feet overhead. Talal was a paradise of greenery, but Darrow had been hauling tugs of agriza stones and clay pots to the Victory Saber for almost ten hours straight, and even paradise started to be tiring after a while. The path twisted abruptly, and Darrow struggled to maneuver the heavy flatbed around the bend, fighting its inertia. "'Damn Arbolita,' he muttered. "'Why can't they just cut a straight road for once?' He knew why, though. The Arbolita would not have cut a road through their sacred margalo trees at all. To the Arbolita, the margalo trees were a road, since they traveled exclusively by swinging from branch to branch, grasping as easily with their long toes as with any of their four hands. This road had probably been created specifically for the humans, coaxing the trees not to grow or laboriously moving them. He rounded yet another sharp bend and gasped. There in the center of the road lay an Arbolita. He slammed on the tug's brakes and the coupling behind him groaned as it tried to halt the enormous flatbed's forward momentum. Why is he on the ground? he thought. They're never on the ground. Onward came the tug like an avalanche, closing the distance with exaggerated slowness. Get out of the way! shouted Darrow, motioning with his hand. The Arbolita struggled to stand, but its legs were a twisted mess. Had it fallen from the tree overhead? Darrow looked to the left and right, but the tunnel was just wide enough for the flatbed, with no room to go around. He was almost on top of the thing now, close enough to see the distinctive pattern in the fur on her back to mark her as female. She cried out and covered her face with her arms. Desperately, Darrow ripped open the override panel and cut the suspensors on the right side of the flatbed. It dropped immediately to the ground, digging a long furrow in the dark, rich soil. Dara was jolted badly and only just managed to slap the suspensor boost, surging the left side of the tug up and over the head of the wounded Arbolita. The tug flipped completely on its side, the metal screaming as it plowed into the margalo trees on the right side. Dara was thrown from the tug and slammed hard into the ground, losing consciousness. This one is among the tops. This one is the Tilal Earth Liaison. Among the tops held out one of his hands, and Darrow shook it. Among the tops looked pleased, as if he had scored well on a test. His fur was a pale tan, almost white, contrasted with a dark face and hands. He was small for an adult. This one will serve as speaker at your hearing. Among the tops, I am confused. Why am I being put on trial? Among the tops widened his eyes in shock, but covered it quickly. Darrow from Offworld, your hauling cart has killed several margalo trees. Yes, but as I already explained, I saved the life of that Arbolita woman who was hurt in the road. At the expense of the life of multiple margalo trees. Darrow exploded. Who cares about the damn margalo trees? Among the tops was quiet for a long time. Darrow from Offworld, are you to decide which life is more worthwhile? Darrow massaged the bandage around his aching head. And if I lose this hearing, how much will I owe? My salary isn't all that much, you know. If the hearing does not go in your favor, the interpreter will order your life end. 
Garo's mouth dropped open. My death? Over some damn trees? I saved a life. I should be the hero here. Life for life, what could be more fair? Asked among the tops in puzzlement. But I saved the life of an Arbolita. Don't you get it? And if life is so sacred to you, how can you so casually order my death? Isn't my life sacred? Among the tops just blinked at him. I don't believe this. This is crazy. No sane judge would order my death after I almost killed myself saving someone's life. I know I'm in the right here. Among the tops looked doubtful. This one is not so sure, Darrow from Offworld. It seems your injured head keeps forgetting about the Margalos. Darrow from Offworld, this one is Moonsong. This one will be interpreter for your hearing. Moonsong was seated in a comfortable-looking nest in the center of a large bowl of branches, high atop an enormous margalo. He was big and round, with heavy jowls and dark fur, almost black. A third arbolita stood. She was large, and her fur was a dusty red color. This one is fruit-found. This one will be speaker for those who cannot speak. Moonsong spoke again. This one is ready for hearing. So, Fruit Found began. The Story of the Batilia's Lesson In the forest grew a tall and beautiful margalo tree. Its branches were many and wide, strong for gripping with many hands. Many Helado climbed its trunk, Rahalo nested in its branches, and Lastaha scuttled around its roots. Its fruit fed many and also sprouted more morgalos, which was good for the forest and for Tilal. One day a wicked Batilia took root in the beautiful margalo, working its tendrils deep into the bark. This one will climb you and suck you dry, until your leaves are brown-facing and you will come to life-end, whispered the Batilia. The margalo sighed. Very well, you are but one more to feed, and this one will give as long as this one is able. The Batilia laughed a cruel laugh. Why do you care about the Hilado and the Rahalo and the Lestaha? You are a fool. This one cares only for this one's self. Ah, said the Margalo, but eventually you will come to life end like this one and all others, and when life end time comes, no one will miss you. The Helato and Rahalo and Lastaha will go on, and if they think of you at all, they will be glad you are gone. The Patilia thought about these words, and after a time it came to see the error of its ways. Margalo, this one sees now that this one only takes and does not give. This one will now life end, for that is the only way that this one can improve Tilal. All can give if they are willing. If you wish to come to life end, allow the Helato to eat you, and you may nourish another. Very well, said the Batilia, and sustain the Helato with itself, so that it may give as well as take. Did he just tell the interpreter a story? whispered Daro. Of course, replied among the tops. The speaker reminds the interpreter of the relevant pieces of wisdom, and the interpreter decides how they related to the hearing. Let me guess, I'm the fungus, and it would be better for everybody if I would just die. Among the tops nodded enthusiastically. 
Yes, yes, you understand. The Story of the Lataha and the Fire One day a young Lastaha came upon a fire in the forest. The fire had all but extinguished, but he found a stick with a flame and he took it. From sun to moon the Lastaha played with the stick, running through the forest and making swirl shapes in the air. Finally he grew tired and laid down the stick. First smoke appeared and the Lastaha watched it curl to the sky. Next a small fire kindled and the Lastaha watched it burn. Then the fire spread along the ground and still the Lastaha did nothing. Finally the fire became hot enough that the Margalos began to burn and the fire raged out of control. Sun to moon three times the fire burned and many of the forest lost their food, homes and lives. When the fire finally receded, all the Lestaha of the forest gathered. A wise elder stepped forward. Which one is responsible for this destruction? he asked. The young Lestaha answered, The fire is responsible. But which one is responsible for the fire? Do something, hissed Darrow. They're killing us here. Among the tops blinked at him. What would you have this one do? I don't know, mount a defense, object or something. They are speaking wise stories. To what could this one object? Darrow leapt to his feet and faced the interpreter. Your honor, er, most high interpreter, sir, I'd like to offer an alternative viewpoint for your interpretation of that story. All of the Arbolita were frozen in place, staring at him. Fruit Found's mouth was actually hanging open. Darrow hurried on. The story was very good and wise, and Mr. Fruit Found has done well to bring it to our attention. However, I, er, this one believes that Mr. Fruit Found incorrectly interprets the story. I am not the young Mustaha. Which one do you interpret yourself to be? asked Fruit Found, honestly puzzled. As the interpreter will no doubt himself decide, I am the fire. At once, both Fruit Found and Among the Tops began muttering to themselves in disagreement. Darrow wanted to shoot Among the Tops a dirty glance. However, he kept his eyes on Moonsong, who looked thoughtful. The interpreter is the only one who counts, Darrow thought. Moonsong shifted from side to side and then spoke. In your interpretation, which one is the Lestaha? Which one is responsible for the fire? That's not for the fire to decide. The fire can only act in its nature. Though, perhaps in this case, it could be attributed to a deformed alien culture which does not value life properly, Darrow added hopefully. It was quiet now, and the interpreter's brow was furrowed in thought. Among the tops gave a couple of hesitant nods to himself, most likely agreeing with the deformed alien culture part. Darrow dared to let a little hope creep into his heart. It was obvious now that his death had been a foregone conclusion. Nobody had expected him to mount any kind of defense. Perhaps an Arbolita wouldn't have, taking it for granted that the dead tree's lives were worth more than his own. But that was crazy. No matter what the Margalo did for the rest of its life, it would never do as much as he could. Hadn't he proved that already by saving the hurt Arbolita woman? Finally, Moonsong came to a decision. Darrow from Offworld, you have made this one think. 
However, this one cannot accept your interpretation. The fire can never be responsible for any action, for the blame always lies with the Lestaha. This one cannot interpret that any person, even an off-worlder, cannot be responsible for all things. Therefore, this one must regretfully decide— Your Honor, Darrow cried desperately, do I not get a chance to speak on my behalf? Actually, this one is your speaker, said among the tops, but Darrow glared at him so furiously that he hunched his shoulders and tried to look small. This one is skeptical that you know any wise stories, said Moonsong, but you may try if you wish. The Story of the Mouse and the Rock On my home planet there is a tiny furry animal that is fast and clever and nimble. Most importantly, they have very sharp teeth. This particular mouse was running through a narrow passageway down the side of a mountain. Tall rock walls rose up on either side, as tall as margalo trees, trapping the mouse in the canyon. An enormous boulder rolled behind him, shaking the ground as it came. No matter how fast the mouse ran, he was never able to get more than a few seconds ahead of the boulder. Suddenly, the mouse saw before him two rabbits, trapped in snares. "'Save us!' they cried. The mouse could easily gnaw through the ropes that held the rabbits, but he didn't have time to save them both. As he ran toward the rabbits, the mouse looked at them, trying to choose. Perhaps one rabbit would become a parent.' Perhaps one would start a fire, like a careless Lestaha. But which one? How could he choose? The mouse realized that he could not know which rabbit to save, so he ran past both rabbits without slowing. At last, the mouse found a crack in the wall and scurried up out of the canyon, breathing hard as the boulder rolled by beneath him. A raven, sort of like a big black rahalo, was perched on the edge of the canyon, "'Why did you choose death for those two rabbits?' asked the raven. "'No, I made no choice,' said the mouse. "'Not acting is making a choice,' replied the raven. Darrow shouldered his pack and took a step up onto the gangplank of Victory Sabre. "'Talal is a beautiful planet. I'll be sorry to never see it again. But a lifetime ban is far better than the alternative.' This one cannot tell if you are wise or if you are merely tricky, said among the tops. What's the difference? asked Darrow. This one cannot tell the difference, but Interpreter Moonsong surely can tell the difference. Any story can be interpreted in many ways, depending on your point of view. All you can do is try to do your best and hope your story is interpreted correctly. Darrow turned and walked up the gangplank into the ship. At the last minute, he turned back to look at Tilal. The margalo trees stood like a wall at the edge of the launch clearing, their enormous green branches reaching for the sky. Rahalos flitted among the leaves, and Lestaha scurried among the roots. Among the tops ambled away, preparing to leap onto the nearest tree. As the gangplank started to close up, Darrow thought he caught a glimpse of a female arbolita peeking at him from the tree line. Then he was scrambling for his place as Dara went off from this world for the last time. The End of The Story of Daro and the Arbolita by Shane Halbach
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. There you go. Don't forget, copyright is Shane Hallenbach. Shane, thank you so much for that. And Mr. Mark Nelson, what can I say, sir? Lovely to have you back on the show there. Thank you so much. So finally, it is, it's not finally, God, my God, finally, it's Mr. J.J. Caminella with his science news. Jim, sir. Greetings and anti-mimical metabriations, my sorrentously ligulated listeners, and welcome to this October 2016 science news update. I'm your host for this pungently sordid science podcast segment, Jim Campanella. Let's just get to business. To build a bit on last month's theme of evolution, I came across a really interesting article in the journal Scientist by Dr. John Hawkes of University of Wisconsin. Hawkes writes an article that examines how humans are still evolving. Many scientists have suggested just the opposite. Some have suggested humans have ceased to evolve because now we control our environment and our environment does not control us. But that may be just a confused observation. Hawks writes about the study published last month by Harvard University's Dr. Jonathan Beauchamp, in which he compared known gene variants with relative lifetime reproductive success, what he called RLRS, a proxy for the number of biological offspring an individual has. In people of European descent living in the U.S. and enrolled in the health and retirement study. In this cohort, Beauchamp found evidence that evolution may have selected against educational attainment, while favoring a higher age at Menarche for women, although he notes that cultural and environmental factors may have overridden the effects of natural selection. He makes the case that humans do continue to evolve. The first solid evidence of natural selection in recent human populations was found in the blood. Blood type B is common across Central Asia, but much rarer in other places. Newly identified blood types outside the ABO system have also been found, and each have a distinctive geographical distribution. One of the most extreme is the Duffy blood type, which has three different versions, or alleles, just like the ABO system. One of these types, Duffy null, occurs in up to 95% of people in sub-Saharan Africa, which is very rare among people whose ancestry comes from other parts of the world. In addition to blood type, the researchers have investigated the evolution of blood disorders and abnormalities. One of the most interesting is the deficiency of the enzyme glucose-6-phosphate dehydrogenase, which helps maintain red blood cells. At a low level, this enzyme causes extreme, even lethal, health problems. Other health peculiarities include the sickle cell trait, reduced production of hemoglobin, hemolytic anemia, and abnormal hemoglobin types. By examining the frequencies of these conditions, researchers have found these blood variations coincide with regions where malaria has been 
common throughout history. And further work has revealed small changes to hemoglobin can impede the malaria parasite's ability to break into red blood cells. These variations were not without consequences, though. While one sickle cell allele is protective against malaria, most people who have two die young, usually without reproducing. It's no surprise that malaria-free areas have extremely low rates of the sickle cell trait and other red blood cell variations. While distribution of blood types and abnormalities was the first evolutionary pattern identified among recent human populations, maybe the most famous is people's ability to digest milk beyond infancy. Around 30% of the calories in milk from humans and all other mammals come from a sugar called lactose. And to make use of the energy stored in lactose, the digestive system has to be able to break it down into its two separate chemical subunits, which are galactose and glucose, which are two smaller sugars. The chemical reaction is catalyzed by the enzyme lactase, the gene for which is shared across all mammals. In most species, lactase is only expressed in the young prior to weaning, leaving adults unable to digest lactose. Regular consumption of milk by adults can sometimes spur a minimal amount of lactase production, but drinking large amount of milk or other lactose-containing dairy products can cause severe digestive distress. People from China often have trouble digesting milk, as do many people from Southern Europe. Yet in Northern Europe and parts of Sub-Saharan Africa, more than 95% of people produce the lactase enzyme throughout their lives and can thus digest milk as adults without any difficulty. The persistence isn't due to any changes in the enzyme itself, but to short patches of DNA outside the gene that actually regulate its activity. People from Ireland to India share one mutational change that prompts lactase persistence. In Arabia and Sub-Saharan Africa, there are four others. At least five times, ancient humans had a chance mutation that spurred lactase activity in adults and began to spread through the population. Not surprisingly, these populations live in precisely the areas where people domesticated cattle, sheep, goats, camels, etc. for milk production. That domestication happened only in the last 10,000 years, and cattle became common in sub-Saharan Africa and northern Europe much later than that placing an upper time limit on these genetic changes. Lactase persistence is one of the most profound changes in recent human populations, and one of the first to be investigated by scientists working with DNA directly from ancient skulls or remains. Before 7,000 years ago, the ancient people of Europe lived only by hunting and fishing and gathering. They didn't farm or keep domesticated animals. Gene sequences from the remains of these people have never produced any evidence of lactase persistence. Only well after people began to keep cattle, as evidenced by milk residues found in pottery, did mutations promoting lactase persistence actually arise. Once it appeared within these ancient populations, the numbers of people with lactase persistence grew by up to 10% per generation. Its advantage was enormous, maybe the strongest known for any recent human trade. This kind of evolutionary advantage probably resulted from increases in fertility. Women on calorie-restricted diets have lower fertility, and they take longer after the birth of a child to conceive again. If lactase-persistent women could use the extra energy from milk to begin their reproductive lives a couple of years earlier, well, they would have a reproductive advantage. 
Indeed, the frequency of lactase persistence has continued to climb substantially in some places, even within the last couple of thousand years. Unlike lactase persistence, most human traits are not the product of a single gene. Instead, they're influenced by sets of genes, something called polygenetic traits. And studying the selection on these kinds of traits has not been quite as easy. Skin color is probably the classic example. One of the largest, most obvious physiological differences between populations, skin color is influenced by more than two dozen genes in a pathway that produces the pigment melanin and regulates the amount of melanin in different tissues. Changes to these genes interrupt the generation of the dark pigment eumelanin, leaving skin with larger amounts of the reddish pigment pheomelanin, leading to various skin tones and patterns of coloration, like freckles. Despite its complex genetics, skin color shows consistent patterns of evolution across the globe. People whose ancestors lived in the tropics tend to be dark-skinned, while those who lived farther north and south tend to be lighter-skinned. One of the revelations of the last 15 years of study is just how recent this pattern is. According to analyses of ancient DNA, people who lived in northern Europe only 10,000 years ago would not have had the extremely light skin of today's people in that region. Hawks finishes by saying, humans across the globe have been living under very different selective pressures since our sub-Saharan roots. And in fact, the cultural differences that have emerged appear to have accelerated some kinds of evolutionary changes. The domestication of animals led to dairying, for example, a new dietary niche in which lactase persistence provided a huge advantage. Clearing tropical land for planting domesticated crops and keeping water in pots changed human ecology in more disturbing ways, creating new habitats for mosquito species to afflict human populations with yellow fever, malaria, and then spurring protective changes in the red blood cell morphology. Moving into new ecosystems also demanded new adaptations from growing human populations, from lighter pigmentation at high altitudes to maintain vitamin D production to improved oxygen metabolism in people living at high altitudes. Hawks finishes with this statement, quote, New evidence of how the human genome has changed over the last several thousand years points to a series of massive critical evolutionary changes, setting some aspects of our biology clearly apart from that of our forebears. And we are no doubt continuing to evolve today. Unquote. Next story, phantom traffic jams. First, let me tell you that I have been complaining about this on the Garden State Parkway in New Jersey for years. I'm sure that my wife and family are sick of hearing me go on about it, but luckily for you, you're a captive audience. Sorry. So usually traffic jams have obvious causes. An accident, construction, a stalled vehicle. But some appear for no apparent reason. And just as suddenly as they happen, they clear up. Traffic specialists have called these phantom traffic jams. And they're anything but phantom as far as I'm concerned as I sit trying to get my kids to school on time. But what do I know? I'm not a traffic specialist. The specialists say that these jams result from bottlenecks. Maybe a bad driver or maybe a bad lane merge. But Dr. Yuki Sugiyama from Nagoya University has suggested that maybe these traffic jams happen just because there are simply too many vehicles on the road. 
No one has ever tested these ideas until Sugiyama came along. He's a physicist, and he set out to perform a controlled experiment to get to the bottom of phantom traffic jams. Sugiyama's team recruited volunteers to drive around a 230-meter-long circular track, and he recorded their progress using a 360-degree video camera set at the center. The drivers were asked to cruise at 30 kilometers per hour in a single lane and maintain a safe distance from the car ahead. Although the cars started out at almost uniform distances apart, and for a while the traffic flowed smoothly, the drivers couldn't maintain the precise speed for long, and the cars soon clustered at some point along the route. About three minutes into the experiment, stop-and-go waves developed and propagated in the direction opposite to the traffic flow, resulting in traffic jams. In each trial, the cars inside the clusters stopped completely while the cars outside continued to move freely. Then a vehicle at the front of the cluster would accelerate to escape it, but inevitably another vehicle would approach and find itself joining the back of the cluster. Sugiyama said in his New Journal of Physics article, quote, The aim of this experiment was to show the evidence that emergence of traffic jams needs no bottleneck. In fact, the observed traffic jam waves on the experimental track were similar to patterns formed by individual vehicles on the highway as captured by aerial photography. Unquote. Sukiyama next wondered if there was a critical traffic density for inducing the phantom jams. He said, quote, We performed the forming jam experiments in a big baseball dome arena with various car densities. We found that the clusters formed when 22 or more cars are on the track, but not with fewer than 22 cars. This threshold matched well with a critical density of nearly 25 vehicles per kilometer which is suspected to cause traffic by the Japan Highway Public Cooperation, unquote. Smaller phantom jams form above a critical level of crowding, but in more dense traffic, small fluctuations escalate into full-blown self-sustaining traffic jams. Sugiyama says, quote, The density of cars is almost universal in each jam, but the size of the jam is arbitrary. So how can we minimize the traffic bottlenecks? Sugiyama suggests, quote, reduce the cars running on a highway because the essential reason for forming a jam is exceeding the critical amount of traffic, unquote. Yeah, right. Good luck making that work in the tri-state area around here or in L.A. People are addicted to their cars. It's not going to happen. And people can't get places without those cars when stuff is just so far apart. So, would automatic cars like Amazon's RoboCar be better at avoiding traffic jams? Sugiyama doesn't think so. Quote, automatic cars also create a jam if cars move as individual particles. In fact, my study suggests that since the critical density for forming a jam is universal, a large amount of traffic would make a lot of jams, and it doesn't matter how alert the driver is, human or robotic, unquote. Next story. This one is an update on the exoplanet search. And guess what? We've finally found a good candidate world. And not only that, but it's nearby. The new planet was reported in the journal Nature just last month by Dr. Guillaume Anglada Escude of Queen Mary University of London. The planet Proxima b was discovered by astronomers who spent years looking for signs of the tiny gravitational tug exerted by a planet on its star. 
after spotting hints of that kind of disruption in 2013. Proxima Centauri is about four light years from Earth, making it slightly closer than the binary star system of Alpha Centauri, which the Proxima star is thought to loosely orbit. The team says the planet is likely to be 30% more massive than Earth, although it could be bigger than that. It orbits the star at a distance of about 7 million kilometers, less than 5% of the distance between Earth and the Sun, making its year about 11 Earth days. You might think that such a tight orbit would scorch the surface of the planet, but Proxima Centauri is a small red dwarf star and shines much less fiercely than our Sun. Standing on the surface of the planet, you'd see the star as a dull red orb, about three times as large as our sun appears from Earth. As a result, the planet sits in its star's habitable zone, and its surface temperature may be right to host liquid water. The planet is rocky, has a similar mass to Earth, and temperate, all the conditions that are promising for life. But Proxima b is not a second Earth. Anglada Escuda says, quote, our knowledge of the surface temperature is fairly uncertain, ranging from negative 33 degrees centigrade to the high hundreds, depending on the atmosphere. Proxima b and its star are also probably tidally locked, so the same face of the planet always points toward the star. So one half of the globe is in perpetual day and the other a never-ending night. That isn't very Earth-like. Unquote. Whether life could exist on such a planet also depends on the nature of his atmosphere, which we know nothing about. The atmosphere could be pure carbon dioxide, like Earth's was before the emergence of life, and with a density that is anything from a Mars-like wisp to the choking clouds of Venus. A dense enough atmosphere would trap heat from the star and potentially distribute it to Proxima b's permanent dark side making it possible for the planet to retain oceans in their liquid form throughout the planet's surface. Although Proxima Centauri's dimness provides the planet with a balmy climate, the star is prone to outbursts of harsh X-ray and ultraviolet radiation, which could damage any chance of life on the planet. X-rays hit the surface 400 times more often than those from Sol when it pubbles the Earth, the magnetic field and dense atmosphere could shield against the effect of these harmful rays. Pinning down these details might take decades, because we don't yet have telescopes powerful enough to see the planet directly. Next story, is your personal bacterial biome making you fat? Well, it turns out probably not. Okay, over the last year or so, there have been dozens of journal articles and even articles in the popular press that have said things like, Is your bacterial biome affecting your intelligence? Is your bacterial biome making you tired? Or even, Is your bacterial biome making you a Nazi? All right, maybe I made up the last one. But the most common headline has been, Are your gut microbes making you fat? This has annoyed me endlessly, because it implies a lack of free will on the part of humans, but I have just gone along with it, Hey, science is science, right? Since the earliest studies of intestinal microflora, researchers have reported that obese individuals, both human and animal, carry a gut microbiome that's different from that of lean individuals. Now a new study out last month in the journal mBio calls these conclusions into question. 
Dr. Patrick Schloss of the University of Michigan scanned the literature to identify 10 studies that included participants' body mass index and the 16S RNA gene sequences for their gut microbes. The 16S gene sequences are some of the RNA sequences that are part of the ribosome of the bacteria. Ribosome, if you remember, makes proteins. So Schloss pooled the data from these studies and analyzed them collectively to assess whether microbiome richness, diversity of bacterial species, or the ratios of bacterioids and Firmicutes species correlated with obesity. Despite the numerous previous studies that connected changes in these features of the microbiome to obesity, the new analysis found, well, it found no strong correlations. An individual's microbiome signature could not be used to predict whether that participant was lean or obese. Schloss said, quote, when we looked across studies in humans, there was no consistent signal of what types of bacteria are correlated with obesity or leanness. The only connection we corroborated was that the microbiome of obese individuals was slightly less diverse than that of non-obese individuals, unquote. Several animal studies provide strong evidence for the microbiome obesity link. For example, transplanting gut microbes from normal mice into germ-free animals caused the latter to gain weight. And again, Schloss stated, quote, the results we see in mice when manipulating microbiota are convincing, so to not see that translated in humans was surprising. From the mouse studies, we are fairly confident that the microbiome has a role in obesity, but we don't know what that role is or how big a contributor it is, unquote. He concluded by saying, quote, we think that future studies should include more participants in order to identify stronger correlations between the microbiome and obesity. Long-term studies that track the microbiome as people gain or lose weight may also prove more effective than looking for differences after a person is obese, unquote. Okay, my thought is that the gut microbe transplantation studies that were done with mice need to be done with humans. This may simply be an effect that can only be seen in mice. It's not as if there haven't been dozens of instances in the last 50 years that demonstrate over and over and over again that mice and humans are very different physiologically. You just can't compare the two that easily. So I love the next story so much that I gave the paper to my advanced undergraduate molecular biology class to read a few weeks back. The story has to do with tardigrades. I suspect that many of you are scratching your heads right now. What is a tardigrade, you are wondering? Well, a tardigrade, also known as a water bearer, is a cute, ugly, microscopic animal. Not an insect. It's not a protozoan. It's in a different order entirely. And it's able to withstand amazing changes in its environment. For example, when there is no water in their environment, the tardigrade shrinks by losing body water and enters an almost completely dehydrated dormant state called anhydrobiosis. The dehydrated tardigrade exhibits extraordinary tolerance against a variety of extreme conditions. Ultimately, the water bear is so resilient because of its genetic endowment, as Dr. Takuma Hashimoto and his fellow University of Tokyo researchers have confirmed. When Hashimoto transferred one particular water bear gene to human cells, the gene produced a DNA-protective protein, which helped the human cells survive otherwise fatal amounts of radiation damage. 
Most remarkably, the human cells did not appear to find the gene particularly disruptive, and they retained their ability to divide normally. Hashimoto's paper appeared in the September issue of Nature Communications in an article entitled Extremo-Tolerant Tardigrade Genome and Improved Radiotolerance of Human Cultured Cells by Tardigrade Unique Protein. The article describes how Hashimoto's group determined a high-quality genome sequence for a water bear species that is known to survive exposure to high doses of radiation. Using this full genome, they found evidence of a previously unknown protein that appears to confer radiotolerance. They call this protein the damage suppressor protein, or DSUP for short. The key to Hashimoto's analysis was an evaluation of how gene expression profiles changed for the water bear, depending on whether it was in a dehydrated or rehydrated form. The water bear, the scientist noted, is most resilient to extreme conditions when it is in the dehydrated state. Hashimoto focused on tardigrade unique proteins, particularly those demonstrating an ability to associate with DNA. Only one protein, the DSUP, was found to co-localize with nuclear DNA. When the gene for DSUP was engineered into human cells, the protein showed a similar capacity for co-localization. Next, the scientists exposed the DSUP expressing human cells to radiation. They demonstrated that a tardigrade unique DNA associative protein suppresses X-ray induced DNA damage by 40% and improves radiotolerance. The findings indicated the relevance of the tardigrade unique proteins to tolerability and tardigrades could be a bountiful source of new protection genes and mechanisms. Hashimoto says, quote, What's astonishing is that previously, for years, we have believed that molecules that repair damaged DNA are the most important for allowing an organism to tolerate radiation. On the contrary, DSUP does not repair damaged DNA. It works to minimize the harm inflicted on DNA by creating a protective layer, unquote. Hashimoto believes that his precise tardigrade genome sequence is a treasure trove of other DSUP-like proteins and that more of these molecules will be found in future research that increases the creature's resilience. So I think this is very cool. It's cool because of what it tells us about water bear biology, but it's even more cool for another reason. So, right now, what is the biggest problem facing humans who want to travel to Mars and other parts of the solar system? Well, yeah, tedium and boredom from years of being in space, those are way up there, but what's even worse? The answer is radiation. How can we protect humans from years of exposure to damaging radiation? And I think the tardigrades have the answer. Now, it's unclear to me whether we will actually have to create transgenic humans that make their own DSUP, or we can figure out some other way to get it into a human, like a pill or an injection, but it seems obvious that this is the way to fix the problem if we really want to explore the solar system. Just think about it. NASA, you listening? This gene and others like it may turn out to be our key to actual travel in the solar system. All right. Last story of the night. Since the Nobel Prizes came out just in the last couple of weeks, let me report on who won the Ig Nobel Prizes for this year. The 26th annual Ig Nobel Prize ceremony occurred this month at Harvard. Each winner has done something that, quote, 
makes people laugh and then think, unquote. Winners travel to the ceremony at their own expense from around the world to receive their prize from a group of genuine, genuinely bemused, Nobel laureates. First, the Ig Nobel Prize was given to Gordon Pennycook, James Allen Shane, Nathaniel Barr, Derek Kohler, and Jonathan Fugelsang from the University of Waterloo for their paper, quote, on the reception and detection of pseudo-profound bullshit, unquote, in the journal Judgment and Decision-Making. By presenting volunteers with, quote, seemingly impressive assertions that are presented as true and meaningful but are actually vacuous, unquote, the team determined that those with intuitive cognitive styles and supernatural beliefs were more likely to consider these nonsense phrases to be profound. Speaking of BS, did you know that rocks have personalities? Discovering these personalities won Mark Avis, Sarah Forbes, and Sheila Ferguson from Massey University the Ig Nobel Prize in Economics. Using the Acres brand personality scale, the team showed that rocks which have no association with particular brands, actually have distinct brand personalities. Uh, I'm not entirely sure what the point of that was. Faulty measurement tools aren't always to blame when experiments don't always return the expected results. This year's Ig Nobel Prize in Chemistry went to the Volkswagen Corporation, which recognized narrowing restrictions intended to reduce air pollution generated by cars. This ingenious company figured out how to make their cars emit significantly fewer pollutants. During testing, that is. On the road, their emissions did not improve. Cars simply reduced emissions when they detected testing equipment. Frankly, I think it's genius. Few scientific tests can detect outright lies like this, but that fact didn't stop Evelyn Debbie, Martin de Schruver, Gordon Logan, and Chris- Christina Sukowski, and Bruno Versuer from Ghent University, who won this year's Psychology Prize for asking 1,005 liars how frequently they lied and testing their lying proficiency. It turns out that children and teens are the most adept liars. Adults seem to lose this ability and lie less frequently than children. Attempting to deceive our fellow human beings is one thing, but Christoph Helmchen, Karina Paltzer, Thomas Munte, Silke Anders and Andres Sprenger of the University of Lübeck won the Ig Nobel Prize in Medicine for proving that people can deceive themselves. The team recruited healthy volunteers to sit with their arms on the table with a mirror in between. They then tickled one arm and scratched the other so that in the mirror it appeared that the itch had been scratched. To their surprise, the volunteers reported that this satisfied their desire to scratch the itch. The team thinks that offering a mirror to people who suffer from skin diseases where itches lead to infection and should not be scratched may improve their quality of life. Viewing situations from a variety of perspectives was quite popular among award winners this year. Naturalist Charles Foster, who lived in the wild as a badger, an otter, a deer, a fox, and a bird, shared the biology prize with Thomas Thwaites, who commissioned custom prosthetics and lived as a goat. Atsuki Higashiyama and Kohei Adachi tested perceived differences in the size and distance of objects when viewed directly or when bending over and peering between their legs. For this, they won the Ig Nobel Prize in Perception. 
Finally, Ahmed Shafik from Cairo University showed that polyester pants reduce sexual activity in rats by dressing 75 rats in polyester cotton blends, cotton or wool pants, and comparing them to their naked neighbors. Shafik attributed the reduction in sexual activity to electrostatic fields induced by the polyester pants. Well, that's all from me for now. As always, take care. Stay away from radiation unless you're a water bear. Stay away from polyester pants unless you absolutely have to. Be patient during those mysterious traffic jams with no cause. Keep evolving, and I hope I've inspired some of you. Until next time, this is Jim Campanella. Jim, always a pleasure. Thank you so much. I didn't actually reply to you, Jim. Sorry for us. I forgot to say I got it. <laughs> Thank you very much. So that is the end of the show. I hope you've enjoyed it. Fantastic. Big thank you to Shane, to Mark and to Jim. Do you know what I mean? Can't, can't get this done without you, gentlemen. Thank you so much. And Mr. Jeremy Sal, thank you, sir. Putting it all together. Now, don't forget to keep this going. If you can just, you know, if you don't mind donating, that would keep us abreast of all the nonsense. Just pop over to the website. Or, hey, there's loads of different ways you can do it there through... Normal monthly donations on the site, or you can go through Patreon, or you can just kind of th- post a fiver through me letterbox <laughs> to me. Until next week, just like to say, good night from me. Will our heroes survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Starship Sofa. Evacuation procedure initiated. Shuttle set for launch. Airlock will be opened in 3, 2, 1. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network. Dedicated to podcasting. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. The finest genre fiction. You can learn more about The District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.